All right, thanks again, band. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. My name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Great to see you all. Uh, if you're brand new, welcome especially, like Spence said. Uh, we are in a, a sermon, early summer sermon series right now. We're calling Open Mic. We do this now and then to give pastors a chance to preach through uh, whatever they want, basically, hence the open mic. Uh, we're kind of blending it with a big questions element, which we do sometimes as well, where we asked uh, you guys a couple of months ago, I think, or maybe less, but uh, for, to send in some questions you had about the Bible or theology or our church uh, so we could try to make a sermon out of it too. And so I did one of those last week. I'm going to do one more uh, this week. And I think uh, through early July, which is uh, how long this series is going, we're going to do a couple more of those. Some are just kind of uh, on the pastor's minds, and so it's their choice. Uh, but uh, this week's going to be a question uh, as well. Uh, so without any further ado, just to let you know what it was. Uh, the question was, does Hiawatha have a position on the debate over how in control we are of our salvation? Another way to ask that would be uh, a position on how exactly the pendulum swings between our free will, our, um, you know, our, our ability to choose God and, and choose what is good, and God's sovereignty, the need we have for him to kind of be the ultimate uh, breath or, or cause or wind uh, behind our choices, uh, when it, but especially when it comes to salvation. Uh, or, again, kind of categorically, I'm adding some words here just for clarity this, in all these questions, but uh, basically this is usually the kind of the gist of the question is, what uh, does the Bible mean by predestination, which uh, comes up a decent amount in the New Testament? This idea that God predestines us or has predestined us, it's a, a big form of encouragement, actually, the apostles had for the early Christians is don't fear, don't worry, you, you're, you've been predestined, God's love uh, predates you. Uh, which is hugely encouraging, uh, should be anyway. It's, sometimes it gets kind of mired in theological debate and semantics, uh, which uh, doesn't do a lot to encourage us sometimes, but it, it's, it was meant to be uh, kind of an encouraging thing. So what's Hiawatha's thoughts on that? Uh, you know, if you've been around for a while, you've probably heard us talk a little bit about this, not quite so much from the perspective of directly answering the question, uh, unless you've taken one of our classes, uh, which, you know, we'll kind of address it head on maybe in our historical theology or systematics class or something topically. Uh, but this is a sermon, so uh, we, it'll be a little bit different. It won't quite be just, a, hey, we're in a classroom. This, you know, there's, uh, you know, my ultimate concern is to show how this is good news and how this leads us to Christ, and, and hopefully you'll see that along the way. Um, but backing up a little bit and further kind of framing the issue, because for some of you, you might be like, I don't even know there's a debate. What's going on? Uh, that's fine. Uh, and, and as you look at history, it's, it's ebbed and flowed in terms of, you know, Christian sort of uh, locking horns over this issue. Uh, it, but it goes way back. And there has been moments where it's been, a, you know, a bigger deal, talked about a bit more. Actually, when I got the question, I thought, awesome, we're back in the mid-2000s. You know, that's kind of what I, for me anyway, it, it, when I was in seminary, kind of post-college, it was a, I, a lot of people were talking about it. I don't hear about it as much today. But apparently, it's still on uh, someone's mind in the church because we asked the question. But it is a great question. And it actually should be, I think, on our minds, whether it's, not, whether it's this direct or not. Uh, it touches on some things theologically that are worthy of our consideration and, and thoughtfulness. Um, but again, so if you weren't aware, Christians have historically veered. They, there, there's, I said, pendulum here, uh, you know, swayed back and forth between uh, emphasizing free will and God's sovereignty uh, when it comes to our conversion, usually based on how well it fits with their other theological beliefs. Um, it, it's helpful to remember that doctrine is relational. 
I, I had a seminary prof give me that phrase once. I think he called it the relationality of doctrine, uh, same thing. Uh, just that what you believe about one thing will necessarily affect what you believe about another thing. And that's not bad. That's impossible to avoid, actually. Uh, but it's not bad, assuming our starting point is primary doctrine and not secondary doctrine. And I'll, I'll get to that later uh, as, as we go, hopefully, from a couple of different angles. All right? A couple of disclaimers to start, especially if you are kind of privy to this whole uh, debate or conversation. It depends on kind of, again, your background, denominational affiliation, uh, who are your former kind of spiritual influencers or whatever uh, were in the past. Uh, but this, this is an open-handed issue here. This is, uh, our pastors have thought um, a lot about this, and we have formalized our, our, our thoughts about this and many other things, so we all agree. And we think pastoral agreement creates safety, it creates a healthy church culture, it creates clarity and unity, ultimately. But in terms of you know, where, where that goes from there, it's, this is a secondary doctrine at the core. And so you don't have to agree with us to be here. You don't have to agree with us to be a thriving member and leader even in this church. Um, uh, so, so please hear that before we begin. Uh, another disclaimer, this is a drink from a fire hose sermon, and this is also a can of worms sermon, both of which are unavoidable, though I'll do my best to limit the damage. Uh, but please don't hesitate to talk with me or another pastor if you'd like clarity or to discuss further uh, again, this is a sermon, and so I'm not going to be able to address 90% probably, and I hope that doesn't tune you out. Uh, it, it, it's just, you just can't. There's just so much that, that hangs off of these kind of uh, main, main things here. But I did want to focus on the issue of uh, predestination, and I'll, I'll, to further frame this and, and to give you a quick history lesson uh, for all you history buffs, but if you're not history buff, this is actually pretty interesting. Uh, this is actually what the actual question that we received was referring back to. And so I did want to give it a little bit of uh, spotlight here. Uh, so in the late 1500s, a man named Jacob Arminius, the guy on the left, a popular Dutch pastor, uh, started to write and speak uh, about how John Calvin, who on the right here, who was a French theologian, he was a preacher who lived a generation before Arminius, uh, so uh, Arminius started to write about how John Calvin was wrong about predestination. Uh, Calvin had since died, but he spent much of his life writing the first systematic work on Protestant theology called the Institutes of Christian Religion. Uh, in it, he argued for a view on God's sovereignty over our salvation that Arminius felt was wrong or at least imbalanced. But it was really both of their followers who really fought tooth and nail for their respective positions. I'm not going to go into all the minutiae today. It would take way too long. But each side basically wrote a five-point position paper of sorts on their beliefs. The Armenians wrote one called the Remonstrance. Makes you want to just read that, doesn't it? The Remonstrance. And the Calvinists wrote a counter-remonstrance that would later be known by the acronym TULIP. Uh, in some ways, they agreed. Like if you saw each of their five points and kind of held them next to each other, uh, some of you probably know what I'm talking about. You, you might say to some of them, are they talking past each other here? Because they seem to really agree on a lot of things, just slight um, varying degrees of emphasis on certain matters. And in some way, that, that, that is the case. But in other ways, they, they clearly lean toward opposite ends of the theological tension between human responsibility and God's kind of sovereign control and causation uh, over things. 
Um, and other things too, like how depraved we are as human beings at the core. How sinful, how far gone are we um, at the core and how you articulate that. And so you, you can maybe see, uh, even see even there how much your answer to that question, just how far gone we are in our sin, uh, relates to your view on how much we need God to intervene when it comes to our salvation. It's basically the question, how deep is the pit? Uh, can we climb out or not? Is it even, even relatively possible to climb out ourselves, or do, is, it, is, it complete, are we, is it so deep that no rope uh, ever woven together by, by man could ever reach the bottom? Uh, your answer to that is going to, again, the relationality of doctrines, it's going to affect how you view other things and how you understand what exactly happened when I was saved. Like, was it just me making a choice? What did, did God have to soften my heart? What, did he predestine this in some way? What does that mean? Again, all these things. In one sense, they're not fully answerable. There's mystery to it, and we'll talk about that. But in another sense, Scripture does, uh, uh, does speak to these. So there's kind of a both and, but again, how you sort of veer, um, it, it's, it's going to, historically it's differed and made, made Christians uh, kind of fall in different camps. And so... Um, Often the debate then kind of centers on, uh, does our choice kick God's choice into motion, or does God's predestining choice inform our choice? Uh, or another question might be, how much is left up to me versus God? Is God waiting for me, or is he actively pursuing me? Uh, you know, I could, I could phrase this probably in a hundred different ways, but that's just more questions to give you, give you a sense for which there's, these are big questions, and uh, again, worthy of our time to, to think over and, and talk through. All right, so I'm going to start today by talking about biblical balance then. So my, I have kind of a progression today uh, in, in talking about these things. The first is biblical balance. The second will be uh, honing in a little bit on the gospel. We'll get to that. Um, but as you guys read your Bibles, you'll come across verses that seem to lean a little more towards what Calvin taught and other Christians throughout history uh, have taught in that uh, the verses might emphasize God's choice to move towards us, his, uh, his will, to save sinners and, and, to, and to soften their heart. Or I, I was thinking of the phrase, um, to disrupt our hard hearts, to stir them up and, and shake off the outer hard shell so they can start beating again and to single-handedly save us from our sins even before time began. So verses like this, uh, 2 Timothy 1.9, where it says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Or Acts 13, 48. And when they heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That last phrase then being key. As many as were appointed or had been predetermined, uh, you could say or predestined, those are the ones that ended up making a choice to believe in Jesus and, 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 and believing. So kind of highlighting that end of it. John 15, 16, or, you know, so to look at some of the teachings of Jesus, or sayings of Jesus himself, uh, Jesus says, you did not choose me to the disciples, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruits. All right, so pretty clear. Uh, and yet, then you'll keep reading and you'll come across verses like this that lean, uh, you know, towards the Arminian side of the spectrum or that highlight human choice. Second uh, Thessalonians 2.9 says, those who are perishing or not becoming Christians refuse to love the truth and so be saved. 
And so it's just clearly saying the reason why some people aren't becoming Christians is because they're just refusing to believe in Jesus. They refuse to believe he lived and died and rose again and that he's all that they need. And that's the reason. So it's more choice, uh, human choice-centered. Or John 1.12, as many people as received Jesus, he then gave the right to become children of God. So it, it feels a bit more uh, you know, causal in that regard. Like it's, it's those who received him, opened the door uh, essentially of their life uh, that he then gave the right to become his children. Or Acts 2.38.40 where Peter says uh, in, in, a, in the, uh, the first sermon, Christian sermon ever in Jerusalem uh, 2,000 years ago, 50 days after Jesus rose from the dead, he preaches the gospel and then he says at the end, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So the first Christian sermon in history actually came with a kind of altar call. So for, you know, us Baptist types, we're like, all right, see, there you go. Uh, and we don't have a lot of altar calls, so maybe we're bad Baptists here. But, um, but it is sort of a, a place where you see Peter said, here's the gospel. Now you must make a decision about it. What are you going to do with this information? Decide to believe it. Decide to receive the forgiveness of God. Decide to uh, walk, take a, a step across the line in the sand and become what you aren't by becoming a Christian. This is, these, are, these are very biblical concepts. But again, uh, th- this is, uh, might feel a little bit different, right, than, than the things we um, uh, just formally read, uh, leaning the other, the, the other way. So I think that, uh, again, we could list out pages of things here on both sides of this, but I just want to give you a few examples and simply say it's important to let these verses speak on their own terms versus trying to explain one of them away. And that's what sometimes happens in theological discourse is that we try to explain one away. And um, it doesn't mean that um, more can't be said about you know, what's going on in, in either side of these things. There certainly can. But at the same time, there's something to be said about just submitting to what the Scriptures say and not solving every riddle known to the universe. That's okay. Uh, one of my favorite figures in church history, today's actually sermon is, become, is kind of like a church history class. It's, I have a few people I'm mentioning here today. Uh, another one besides, besides um, Calvin and Arminius, uh, but he, his name was Charles Simeon, and uh, some of you might know who he is. He is an English Anglican minister who lived in the 1700s and who is remembered for a lot of things, but his passion for a type of submitting to the tensions of Scripture, a type of preaching that was and, and theologizing that was balanced um, and purely biblical. So he lived actually during what he called the Calvinistic controversy. So it was, it was right when this was all starting to happen, like I was uh, mentioning before. He lived during that time, so there was this Calvinistic controversy. And his approach was to just take, let Scripture speak on both sides and don't try to solve everything. Uh, and there's a lot of wisdom to that. Uh, Simeon once said about good preachers or good theologizers or people who think rightly about this, he says, uh, that type of person has no desire to be wise above what is written, nor any conceit that he can teach the apostles to speak with more propriety and correctness than they have spoken. Uh, William Karras in his, uh, Simeon's memoirs says, uh, Simeon once said that, He does not even know how he's able to move his finger, let alone how God's sovereignty and human responsibility can can cooperate. So he's like, I honestly couldn't even tell you how I'm doing this right now. Like, I I have no idea. So I'm not going to, like, start to, like, you know, 
claim that I can solve this, you know, this, this mystery of Scripture and life and how they, they perfectly, uh, in theology, and how these things perfectly fit together. So I think there's a ton, again, a ton of wisdom there that we don't think ourselves smarter than Scripture. Don't think yourselves smarter than the Bible or smarter than God. Uh, and to let tensions uh, be tensions and mysteries remain mysteries. Uh, so uh, Simeon would say, and we would say this here too, uh, I think it's fair to say most Christians have basically said this throughout all history, and that is to the question of why we are saved, it's twofold. One, because we chose to believe in Jesus. And two, because God appointed us to believe. He chose us and he softened our hearts. Yes, they can go together. Yes, that's hard to believe. Yes, that's kind of a mystery. But yes, that's what scripture teaches. So on Hiawatha's side of things then, uh, into kind of, because um, the question was about kind of where we're at here uh, as a church with this, we, we would say that we're Baptists, but with a big God theological bent. Uh, so a lot of Baptists, what I mean by this is, um, a lot of Baptists historically have followed Arminius, uh, leaned heavily to that side of the spectrum, and, and a lot of that had to do with their views on baptism and how you couldn't just be physically born into Christianity. You had to be born a second time, which came through conversion, which amounted to a choice that people make between rejecting or receiving Jesus. And we agree with that. But that's not the whole story, uh, our choice, that is. There's more going on behind the curtain. And so, so pragmatically then here... Um, we, we don't just invite people to believe the gospel, though we do that like almost every week uh, here, especially when we have communion, we, we, um, we call to belief like, like Jesus does. We, so we do do that, uh, but we also do more. We, we pronounce a big God. We pronounce a sovereign God. We pronounce uh, what God has been doing in the world and what he has done through his son, uh, which includes invading our hearts uninvited. Uh, so that we trust less in our choice, our choice, and we trust more in his choice. So we'll, we'll do both. And I think that's, uh, think of, if you guys know what, who Charles Spurgeon is, um, some of you, like, he, he would be a Baptist with a big God theological bent. So again, um, all these people I'm mentioning, you know, doesn't mean that we agree with everything they ever wrote. We, we probably don't. Uh, it just means that, uh, like Simeon and, and uh, uh, especially, and Charles Spurgeon, um, it, it just means that these are people that might fall similar to where we are um, along the lines between these tension, this, this tension. All right? Uh, so let's move a little bit deeper now into something I'm going to call just the greater importance of gospel centrality. Um, so as important as everything we just said is, as important as biblical balance is uh, between the, these, these two uh, ends of the spectrum, and not taking anything away from that, there's something even more important and that is a gospel-centered starting point. So by that I mean it's, it's questions like this. How is this teaching or doctrine, this point of theology, good news? How does it relate to the gospel? And this, by the way, is when all of this becomes a sermon. If I didn't talk about this, it wouldn't be a sermon. We'd be, you know, I'd just be reading a textbook, basically, to you. Uh, so this is where it starts to become a sermon. It is how does this relate to the gospel? Uh, and so in this case then, uh, especially when we're dealing with two seemingly competing ideas, the question is, which one 
close, it relates closest to what the Bible deems the mountaintop of all theology, which is the gospel. So the Bible itself says that it shows and says in many and various ways that the gospel is the main point of all of it. And, and it's the most important theology. And so if that's the question then, what is this question of Calvinism and Arminianism and predestination and, and the polarities or seemingly so between free will and, and, and God, God's will um, and the pendulum there? Like, uh, how do those secondary things fit underneath the gospel or somehow point to it? Um, and so for us then, to this question of which end of the theological spectrum relates more to grace or relates or, or underscores better in its own way uh, the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, we think there is an answer to that. And so when we ask that question, and to further lay, lay down our cards here, this is why as a church we lean towards the Calvinistic uh, side of the spectrum as a church, at least our pastors do, because we think it better underlines the gospel than the Arminian side. It, it better flows from grace. Um, and, and to help, so to help further show this, I have like four really quick things here that I, I had a hard time thinking through like what I'm even going to call these things. Uh, you, could, you could call them maxims or just statements or uh, values of sorts that kind of flow from uh, seeing how this doctrine of predestination relates to the gospel. Um, and I had to massively cut out like a baz- hundred bazillion things here. So uh, this is in no particular order and there's always more to say. Please hear that too. Um, but four things that hopefully encourage you, um, show you that wherever you're at with this issue, whether you think you've landed somewhere or not, that these are things that at the end of the day we really want you to see as your pastors. We really want you to see that God loves you, that he saved you by grace, that his plan for your life is bigger than your plan for your life, that his choice of you is bigger than your choice for him, uh, that you have more assurance than maybe you thought you did when you walked in here this morning even. Like those are things that you come to church for. You should. You should come to church to know that God, God's, God's love and his dictation of that love over your life is way bigger than you ever thought possible, and it's never going to go away. And and that's really, again, I'll come back to this too a little bit. That's really what we want you to see, though, at at the end of the day. All right, so here's four things, though, that might further show this is how we think, this is how we sometimes preach here uh, and bring these things into sermons sometimes, uh, but this is kind of how it relates to this whole big question for today. Predestination, love, and the gospel. The first is this. God's choice to save us even before time began is a grace that contrasts with the personal choice language of the Old Testament. So this means that when it comes to choice, the Bible moves us from choose this day whom you will serve, which is a quote from the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. It moves from that language in the Old Testament to you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you language in the New Testament. And, and it changes right along covenant lines, meaning the old covenant was predicated on our works and our obedience in our choice, you could say, of God, while the new covenant was built on Jesus' works and obedience in his choice of us. So, so simply saying you must choose God without any type of gospel qualifier and using Old Testament passages to argue for it is a law that crushes us rather than enlivens us. That's what we, we, we think here. Um, and so, again, it's, uh, this, is not, this is different from the, the duality I was just talking about with 
uh, or the, the polarity between, um, you know, our choice and God's, how they kind of fit together. We're bracketing that to the side. This is a covenantal distinction. This is just saying in general, when you read your Bibles, you'll see more choose God people language in the Old Testament than the New. And, and, and there's a reason for that. Because choose God people, uh, show, your, show your devotion is more of an Old Testament way of thinking. It, it likens itself to the law into a do this and then you will live. Choose God and then versus yourself and then you will live. Uh, choose to obey his laws and then you will live. Whereas in the, that never worked for Israel or the world watching. And so when Jesus comes, he comes with a different type of um, uh, tenor, a different type of like uh, mantra, a different type of covenantal way of talking, which is I'm, I'm, I, the old rules are dead. Uh, now that I'm here, I'm choosing you. Uh, and, and like First John says, um, we, it's, this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. You could replace some words there and just say, this is what ultimately choice means in the New Testament. Not that we chose God, but that he chose us. And chose us so much that he sent his son to be a, a sacrifice of atonement for our sins and, and to, to die in our place. All right, tons more to say about that, but that's uh, one, one thing we, we would point to. Two, we're too sinful, too dead, too distracted, and too proud to be able to freely choose God. Uh, this is what Augustine said, uh, in, or taught, was so bent on teaching, actually, in the 4th century when he, when he um, uh, sort of combated Plagius, if you know that whole histor- historical uh, deal as well. Uh, but, but what he was so bent on teaching in the 4th century uh, that, that we need to be acted upon by an outside force to be saved. Uh, the Bible says we need a new heart, but that's impossible for us to produce. Uh, or think about it this way, with John 11 in mind, where Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb. If the greater solution in the Bible is that we need to be raised from the dead, rather than simply choose a diverging path in the road, then we need someone to call us out of our tombs, not simply to give us directions. Does that make sense? If the greater problem is we're dead on our backs, and we need someone to choose to come into our tomb and say, Lazarus, come out, or any of our names, come out, then we need something more than just a direction giver. We need something more than a diverging path on the road and a God who leaves us to take the right, the, the right uh, divergence. We need a tomb raider. We need someone who loves us so much that he would walk into our tombs and enliven us, and that's exactly uh, what, what Jesus did. Third, uh, even faith is a gift, not a work. Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 says, For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. All right, so most people uh, on the Arminian side of the scale, uh, especially in extreme forms, uh, would say that salvation is conditional. Uh, faith being that condition. Uh, but we would uh, disagree. We would say that a right reading of Ephesians 2, 8 to 9 uh, and like passages show us that faith or our ability to trust in God is also something that's received as a gift but, uh, from God, not worked out on our own strength. And so without going too deep into the grammatical side of things, um, many Christians throughout history, and we would be one of them uh, uh, here, is, is, um, have said that about this verse, that faith is the antecedent of the this in verse 8. 
So the this points back to faith. Uh, so what's a gift in this verse? What, what is not from ourselves? Well, it's faith. It's not just grace or this generic concept of salvation. It's the very fact that we can believe it all uh, is a gift from above. Uh, it's a gift to dead people. Uh, the, the, the very fact that we can even trust or believe that he exists, this invisible God exists, is an enlivening, it's an eye-opening, it's an ear-opening. It's, a, again, a, a, a tomb-rating call. Um, so, so faith, this reminds me of uh, Acts 5.31 too, I, I believe it is, where it says that God grants people the ability to repent, which means to turn away from themselves to God. Uh, repentance is a gift, it, it's a given thing. Yes, it's something that we do. Faith is something that we do, absolutely. But, this, but the scripture also teaches behind the curtains of that it is a, a greater wind uh, it, it's a, it's a, that we need that to, to, to allow those things to first take place. Uh, and that wind is the Spirit. That wind is God. That wind is his love um, enlivening our hearts to, to have faith. All right, fourth uh, and final here, at least for this list. Uh, believing we've been chosen is the thing that perseveres us in the faith. All right, so, so this is, starts to get into the, the pragmatic here a little bit too. Uh, for us, and you know, I, I would say on behalf of the pastors here, this is coming from a pastoral heart. Again, wherever you land on this issue, just you know, try to bracket it to the side for a second and just hear this, because you can believe this no matter where you're at with the whole debate. Um, the problem with believing that we're Christians solely based on our choice um, is that we're anchoring our hope on us not on God. Uh, it, it will, if unchecked, will start to question our conversion stories uh, more by asking, when I became a Christian and I chose to believe in God, was that just an emotional experience? Did I truly believe in Jesus then? Do, do I stay saved by a certain level of faith that I prove to God daily? Do I have to believe in him exponentially well? Did I, did I give my life over to God truly? This is, um, this is maybe a helpful kind of pushback against some of the evangelical talk that some, some of us maybe have grown up with uh, where, um, you know, we, we sometimes say uh, about converts, did you give your life to Jesus? You ever heard that phrase before? Have you given your life to Jesus? Uh, have you committed your life to him? Um, okay, the, the, the sentiment aside, the big problem with that is that the Bible never says that. God never says, I want you to commit yourself to me. Uh, the, the Bible says, I've committed myself to you. The Bible says, I've given my life over to you. Isn't that the whole gospel? So when we start talking about giving our lives to Jesus, uh, we, we start to deviate from the path of orthodoxy. We start to deviate from the path of healthy gospel, uh, healthy gospel at, at the end of the day. Uh, and so this, this is where th these kind of things start to help. Uh, so, the, so the Bible talks about uh, the hope of perseverance as Christians. We start to worry less about exactly how well we believed in God. And on our worst days, our, our days of weakest faith, we look to him and his choice of us. And we say, I'm going to be okay. Um, will I make it to the end? Well, yes. Not because of my amazing faith, but because of the one who predestined me to believe because he died for me, and I look to that. He rose for me, and I look to that. Uh, because he began a good work in me on the day I first believed, and he will continue that work 
until our dying breath, as Philippians 1.6 says. All right. This last section, um, I, I had one more angle today that, again, because this is a sermon and not an HLI class that we do here, uh, I, I didn't want to miss an opportunity to say this. Um, in one sense, I was telling Jesse mid, mid, uh, in between services, one, another one of our pastors here, that <clears throat> I finished writing this sermon this week, and I felt like, this is a weird sermon. This whole thing is just weird. Was, I don't usually think that. I mean, I think other things that maybe aren't amazing, but I, I don't think, this is just weird. Uh, but it's a, I think partly why, because it's a sermon. It's not, you know, it's not a class. Um, and this is, the way I'm going to end here may also feel a little bit out in left field. It's actually not. But um, there's one more angle here that often gets missed when talking about predestination. And it still fits underneath this second section of gospel centrality. Because, again, to see the gospel in something is to see grace in it. But taking it one step further to see how the doctrine relates to Jesus Christ himself apart from us, wholesale, and how that's good news for us, well, that's another thing altogether. And uh, two verses come to mind, both from the early parts of the book of Acts, that I'll just read here in unison. Uh, first, Acts 2.23. Again, I quoted from Peter's sermon before, but this is a different section. He says, uh, This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. All right, then Acts 4, 27 30, uh, to 30, this is Peter's prayer. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had predestined should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Okay, I highlight, there's a lot, again, tons going on here, but I highlight a couple of things. Notice how the book of Acts talks about predestination. So go back here. By God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, uh, what, what's, what's Peter talking about? He's talking about the crucifixion, right? And then, uh, and then he, again, he pray, this part of his prayer, this, this one's just praying directly to God. Uh, they, the, cons, the conspirators, the ones who crucified Jesus, uh, Herod and Pilate just being kind of the, the representatives of the crowds, but all, all did, they did what your power and will had predestined should happen. All right, so here's why I think this is so important about this angle on predestination. It's, it's not just about a God who plans and orchestrates. It's about a God who orchestrates to suffer for us. Did you know that the Bible talks about predestination in those terms? God predestined to suffer for you. God predestined to die for you. God schemed and orchestrated to be rejected by sinful men so that salvation could come through his rejection. He schemed to become like you so he could die for you. All of that is predestined as well. And this often gets missed. God planned for eternity past to create us and to love us to the absolute uttermost on the cross. See, that means that his love was not a flippant decision or a last-minute left turn, nor was it shaped by circumstance. God's love for you always was. 
That's what this means. God's love for you always was. Before you were born, God loved you. Isn't that an amazing and comforting thought? Before you were born, he already loved you. He already knew that you would fall away from him. He already knew what it would cost him, and he would willingly pay to bring you back. And he did. Like, how could you ever, how could you ever lose that? You know, if it existed before you made any one stupid choice, uh, right, which we make every day. Uh, how could you, if it existed before any, it predated your sin. His love predated your sin. Then all of a sudden we're talking less about how good we are as Christians, how much we've done for God, and we're talking more about what he's done for us and how much his gospel predates our morality. It predates anything that we ever do. And order matters in the Bible. Chronology matters. A lot of Paul's theology comes from chronology. Uh, the things that predate sometimes outweigh the later things. Sometimes it's actually flipped to make the, uh, different points. So you've got you to follow. He twists his metaphor sometimes. But a lot of times the things that come first, it, it, in this case, his predestining love. So, or you could say it this way, his love has dictated your story since the very beginning and before you were born. It continues every day. And, um, and, this, and this is also good news, uh, as you may have seen in those verses, because... Uh, the verses distinguish between how we scheme for things and how God schemes. Did you guys see this? In Acts 4, uh, according to Acts 4, when we conspire, when we meet together and devise plots, we usually determine to reject God and choose ourselves and to enact vengeance on those who have harmed us. But when God plans and schemes, he doesn't enact vengeance on us, but absorbs the vengeance himself. He chooses us in love and he chooses to suffer himself with outstretched arms that we might be saved. See how different and much better God is than us? See, we, we want vengeance. When, when uh, the Bible, actually Psalm 2 is very helpful here as well. I'm not going to read from that today. Um, when the Bible talks about human beings predestining things or working to scheme and orchestrate and plan, it's almost always for bad things. Like, we plan for bad things all the time. We plan to make much of ourselves. We plan to take God off the throne and put ourselves up. How can I make much of me? And so we post on social media, and we, uh, and we try to work really hard in life to impress our bosses and peers and spouses and friends. And it's always about climbing a ladder. That's how we predestine and scheme and orchestrate. It's almost, as Christians too, it's almost impossible not to do this. So this is why we look at God then and we say, well, how does... The Bible talk about God predestining and orchestrating and scheming. It's the opposite. God says, I will become low. I will condescend myself. I will take the blows. I will let go of my fame. Uh, Philippians 2 says, I, I, I will become nothing. Even though I am God, I'm everything, I will become nothing by becoming human so I can die for sinful human beings. That's how God schemes. That's all God plans. When the triune God is meeting and scheming for our salvation, they talk about how to make enemies like us friends. How to take the worst of people and make them sons and daughters of the king. And the path through that is a bloody cross where Jesus died for the sins of the world. So this is the most important and I think final word on predestination that um, maybe you weren't expecting. Maybe you were, and that's great, uh, but maybe you weren't. Uh, but I, I wanted this to be the final word because um, 
instead of making it all about perfectly solving the theological tension between sovereignty and free, God's sovereignty and free will, um, you know, and, and the questions that come from that, as important as they are, this final word says, my predestining is wicked and selfish, but God's is gracious. I have self-promoted, and God has saved me from my pride, and he has uh, decreased through, and become lower than the angels, the Bible says, all the way down to where we are. How low has he come to get us? I mean, they can't see the bottom of this pit, you guys, and we're down there, but God came all the way down. It's the bottom of the, what's the trench called in the Pacific? I forget the name. The Mariana, is that the name of it? Um, that's where he went to get us. He went all the way down to save us, and, uh, and he lost his life. That's how much he loves. And, and so though, though I scheme to make much of me, God schemes to condescend to become like me, a sinner, that, that I might be saved. And, and this is the gospel for, uh, for all of us uh, today. Let me pray. Father, thank you uh, for this question that, uh, that we received today, but really it's a question uh, I know that it's important. It's something that we, uh, we like to think about sometimes and try to figure out. And in some ways we can, in some ways we can't. The mysteries belong to you and um, I pray that you would reveal things to us, help us to keep learning uh, about this and, 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 to not, and to hold things loosely to a degree uh, so that we can have unity with people who are a little bit different from us. But at the same time, uh, may the gospel shine the light uh, on all mysteries. May, may, may the gospel be the ultimate revealing. May Christ himself be the one that reveals mysteries of all, all the mysteries of theology um, and help us to see your grace uh, in this. At the end of the day, this is about you too. Um, this topic is about you. These verses are about you. The movement from old to new and uh, from law to grace, uh, the, the first Christian sermon ever. Um, I mean, all these things are, are, are about you at the end of the day, and they're meant to console. And so I, I pray you'd please do that for everyone here, and uh, myself included. In Christ we pray. Amen.